Happy New Year to you. I uh, hope you had as much fun during the holidays as I did, but it dang near wore me out. <laughs> All these, uh, you know, 15 people in your house for Christmas, it'll, that's, that's a, what you call either a festival or total chaos. I don't know. It was a lot of fun. And I uh, hope that you've been thinking about 2012 and praying about it. hope you have big plans because I think the Lord does. And I'm sure that uh, you, like myself, have thought about a few resolutions. Maybe it has to do with how tight your clothing is fitting today. Uh, but I don't want you to forget another resolution you can make. In fact, turn to the back of your ESV study Bible to page 2,743. That's at the very back there, 2,743. And there you see what's called a daily Bible reading plan. And, you know, some of you um, maybe haven't read the Bible through in a while. Maybe some of you have never read the Bible through. You might think about it. Today's January the 5th, and don't be daunted by the fact that you've already missed four days. Uh, let me tell you, First Chronicles 1 through 4 uh, is strictly a genealogy. Uh, so you're not going to be too thrilled with that anyway. You've already read the Christmas story uh, during the holidays. Uh, you can easily pick up with Genesis 5, and uh, you can pick up with the Psalms anytime you want to. So you can start with January the 5th, and you see there it's from four sections of the Scripture. So you can, uh, if you wanted to, you could have four times during the day. When you get up in the morning, read another lesson at lunch, read one at dinner, read one before you go to bed if you wanted to. Or if you don't want to read the Bible through in a year, you can take any one of those columns. You say you want to just read the New Testament through in a year. We'll take the Gospels and the Epistles line. And that's less than one chapter a day on the average. And you can read through the New Testament uh, in a whole year. So think about your Bible reading this year. And uh, one little word of encouragement here. When you miss a day, uh, because you no doubt will, don't feel obligated to go back and make up all the days you missed. Just start to pick up right where you are. Just read that day's reading and, and get it going again. And uh, in, in Bible reading, just real simple, just... Pray before you read, just like we pray here at Amen. We always have a prayer, Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to understand it. So you're in your devotions. Lord, thank you for the lesson today. Help me to hear it as your voice to me and help me to put it into practice. Open my mind, my heart, so that I can understand and believe and follow what you're telling me in the Bible. Then read it. And you just got one lesson. You know, you can take one lesson there. And then as Mike Stokey recommended to our congregation last Sunday morning, just take a journal out and record what you believe the Lord is directing you to think, believe, do, or say uh, in your life that day. And it can be a very short entry into your journal. And then you go to prayer about the very thing you read about. So uh, if, you, if you're reading a lesson uh, in your devotions, that's God speaking to you. And since your devotions is a, is a conversation... You want to talk back to the Lord about the very thing he talked to you about. You don't want to change the subject on him. He brought it up out of the, out of the Bible. So you, if there's something in there about uh, some aspect of your ethical life or some aspect of your doctrinal life, pray that back to him and praise him for it. And then you'll also have a little list of intercessions. Uh, some of you, you have an iPhone, you, know, you can get this little app called the prayer app. I don't know what it's called. I can't remember now. But uh, prayer partner. And just put it right on here and list a number of areas of prayer. And you can put them, you can decide which days you want to pray for which one. But whether you do that or you have it in a list somewhere, just uh, have an intercessory list. If you're like me, you're not great enough a prayer to pray through that list every day. So I have to divide it up into seven parts. Each day of the week has an assigned category of intercessory prayer uh, that, that I, I work through on each day of the week. So every day of the week, I just have one Big category, that's my main intercessory category. So you can have 15-minute devotions and do a lot of good. And I just encourage you to think about that uh, this year. And don't, don't get all uh, uh, goofed up if you, if you miss a few days or miss a couple of weeks. Just get right back into it. And remember, that it's the Word of God. It's alive. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And it will, uh, the Word of God will lead you in your life every day. And what I've found through the years is that it's cumulative. I don't remember, of course, everything I read. I have a terrible memory. Uh, but none, 
I actually do. If I <coughs> Some of you think because I, I preach on Sunday mornings often without notes, you think you must have a wonderful memory. Ask me on Tuesday. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't re- repeat a bit of it. Uh, so I, I don't retain things very long. But I do retain something. And it does accumulate. Uh, even if you're 60 years old, you'll, you'll still be accumulating every day. So the, that's the reason the daily thing is important because you're just building a life uh, day by day, uh, reading by reading. All right, speaking of the Bible, I believe we left off in Acts chapter 11 and uh, this marvelous story. If you, if you weren't here before Christmas, please get that uh, CD or pick it up off the website, that last lesson. It's about Peter's, not his uh, conversion to Christ, but his conversion to the Christian mission and his understanding that there's nothing common before God and that he's to treat all men alike and uh, even the Gentiles. And so Peter really got his eyes opened about the Christian mission in chapters 10 and 11. And it ends with uh, the uh, church people saying in verse 18, and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a wonderful verse that is. So, it's true. We can hear from Peter. God is intending to reach the Gentiles. That was revolutionary for the church. They thought it was just for people who had the lineage, the Jewish lineage. For example, when you read First Chronicles, if you do, and you go through all those mind-numbing names, you'll realize how important genealogy was to a Jew. And... Uh, they were amazed that the good news of the kingdom was to go to those who had no lineage, who had no heritage in, in the Jewish family. And here they're amazed. But notice how they put it here. This is a very important verse. You can underline this. God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, we think of repentance as something that we do, and it is. God doesn't repent. We repent. And you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven without repentance. You can't go to heaven unless you believe, and it's something you must do. But notice that God gives it to you. It's amazing. Even the things that you do are a gift of God. So that when you're born again, when you receive His Spirit, you, in that new birth, by the Holy Spirit, you receive the gift of faith and repentance, and then you're exercising it, you're indeed doing it, and you're doing it by your own will. It's an amazing thing. You're, you're deciding to do it. You decide for Christ. You choose to turn from wickedness. But who's enabling you to do that? It's the Lord that gives you repentance. It's a wonderful verse because what it shows is the synergy of God and the believer working together. God obviously is the giver of every good gift. And so even the things that you do come from Him and yet you still do them. So it's, we see there both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, as we turn then to verse 19, we're going to see that this mission that went all the way to Caesarea, which was, you remember, the, the Roman capital for uh, governing all of uh, Judea and Galilee and so on. Uh, Caesarea was the Roman government, and the primary population was not Jewish. It was Roman. And the gospel went there, we saw in chapters 10 and 11. Now we're going to see the gospel starts to leak on up north, on up the coast, what we'd call Lebanon now. Uh, That would be uh, Phoenicia in the old days. And goes all the way up into Syria, uh, including Antioch. Of course, Antioch these days is in Turkey, uh, but it was in Syria in those days. And uh, then let's see what happens here. Because whenever you've noticed already that when the gospel is going beyond the normal borders, it makes church people very nervous. And we're going to see they continue to be nervous, and God continues to push them uh, out into every corner of the world. Well, let's look at verse 19, because in this text we're also going to see what difference it makes uh, for God to call upon a good man to carry out this mission. Okay, verse 19, chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch 
spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, I want us to notice in these first four verses that the church needs good men. The church needs good men. Now, God, we wouldn't say God needs good men. God uses good men. But the church actually needs good men. And it's a good thing for us to be in a room together with several hundred men uh, who could very well be those good men that the church needs today. First of all, I want you to notice that Christ's mission creates challenges. And you pick this up in the first three verses, 19, 20, and 21. Christ's mission creates challenges. That's the reason the church needs good men, because Christ sends us out into his mission. It gets us into all kinds of trouble. It creates problems. His mission creates problems. And if you don't have good men to address these things, you're going to see uh, in the church in history that we don't fare very well. So the church needs good men because Christ's mission creates challenges. And what are these challenges? Well, first of all, 19a, notice that the mission goes to unfamiliar places. Now, those who were scattered uh, because of the uh, persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, as our very said, that's Lebanon, the island Cyprus, 100 miles off the coast, and on up the coast uh, toward Turkey, today's Turkey, into Antioch. So they're going into places that were unfamiliar to them. The Jewish people basically ministered on Jewish turf to Jewish people. And these converted Christians, Jews, We're now realizing their mission goes way beyond their relatives, way beyond their nationality, way beyond the people that they know very well. It goes to all the world. And I've listed here, of course, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, because Jesus tells us to make disciples of what? All nations, all ethnoi in the Greek, which means all ethnic peoples. So our mission, we cannot be satisfied with a mission that merely uh, and only reaches our neighborhood or our city. That, that, that is not satisfactory. Certainly we start there. We start with our family. We start with our neighborhood. We start with our community, our city. But we must go beyond. If we don't go beyond, it's not the gospel because the gospel goes beyond. So if the gospel's got you, it will go beyond. That's the very nature uh, of the gospel. And also I mentioned Mark 5, 1 here because you remember that Jesus gave his disciples a little on-the-job training Their mamas had told them never to go across the Sea of Galilee because on the east side of the Sea of Galilee were these wicked garrisons. And they were known to even participate in devil worship over there. Well, what does Jesus do? Takes them right across the lake, right onto a pig farm. Think about that for a minute. Jews don't touch ham sandwiches or bacon or anything else. You know, don't touch a pig. They're unclean. Jesus not only takes them to the land of the unclean garrisons, he takes them to a pig farm. That's where they land because, because he's showing them something very important. There's no place Jesus will not go. So here again, we, the disciples of Jesus, are always being pushed into places that we would not normally go, into unfamiliar places. And notice also in verse 19 that the ones who are spreading the gospel, their names are not listed here. These are a bunch of unnamed evangelists. Now, we know about Barnabas. We know about Paul. We know about some other people. But what you've got to realize is this is a movement 
of many, many people just like ourselves. And just as we would go unnamed, they did too. But look at it. It's a mighty movement of men who have met Jesus Christ and who are thrilled with Him. And that's how it always works. You, you, can, you can name a few leaders for us. You can give us the Billy Grahams and so on and the George Whitfields. But dominantly, it's just a massive movement of people who have met Jesus Christ and are excited about Him and spreading the news. And that's what was happening here. Now, in verses 19b and 20, we see, secondly, that this reaches unfamiliar people, not just unfamiliar places. Because here we're told that uh, initially the ones who went up into this area, into Lebanon and Syria and so on, they were speaking the word only to the Jews. In other words, they were going to the synagogues and telling their Jewish brethren about the Jewish Messiah who had come, first of all, to save the house of Israel. So it makes sense. They go to the Jew first, as Paul says, and then also to the Greek. But they'd gone only to the Jews, only to the Jews. You say, how could the church behave this way? How can they be so narrow-minded? How can they be so ethnic-centric in the way that they're thinking? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Just look at Memphis. You see, we naturally do this. We're naturally ethnocentric in everything that we do. We naturally just deal with our people those, and, and no one else. That's a natural default position for everybody in the entire world. The gospel breaks through. And I would suggest that really only the gospel breaks through. And we're going to see how it breaks through in more ways than one in just a few moments. But notice that there were some, verse 20, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus was the island, of course, off the coast. Cyrene was in northern Africa. So the northern Africans and the Cyprians, they began to talk to some Hellenists. You notice the word uh, Hellenists there in Antioch. Now, the, the reason this is significant is Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, Corinth, of course, would be right behind it. Uh, Demographers believe that uh, Antioch probably had half a million people in it. I mean, that's a very large city, of course. And uh, Corinth had about 450,000, so it would be right behind Antioch. But Antioch was a major city. Where it was located, right in the crook there of of Turkey, um, it had travelers from Persia, from current Iran, and Iraq, they would come to Antioch as they were selling their goods and traveling. And then you had Romans coming from uh, the West, even speaking Latin. And then you had, in that city, you you had probably around 50,000 Jews. So you had a significant Jewish population. So this city was truly cosmopolitan, had many different languages. It was kind of, you know, like New York in some ways. You walk the streets and you'd hear several languages just like you do in in New York today. So it was a strategic place. Now, uh, what we're told is that some of the Cyprians and those from Cyrene, they began to talk to people who were not strictly converted or or, or Jewish people. And they're called Hellenists here, and scholars are not exactly sure who these Hellenists are. Uh, Often the Hellenists would be like the God-fearers in the synagogue. They were... Uh, Greek-speaking synagogue worshipers, and usually with Gentile backgrounds. But they could have been just mere Greek culture or Greek speakers. Uh, The word Hellenist doesn't tell us exactly, but what we do know is this. They were not ethnic Jews. They may have been God-fearers in the synagogue, but they were not Jews. And some people broke out and began sharing Jesus Christ with them and uh, preaching Him as Lord. You'll notice when the preaching is to the Jews, it's often presenting Jesus as Christ, that is, Jesus as the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Here with the pagans or with those with the pagan background, they're presenting Jesus as Lord, Lord of the universe. So they present, they preach the Lord Jesus. And, uh, and you'll see that some amazing things happen because in verse 21, we notice that this mission enjoys unfamiliar blessings. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So you get both concepts here. They believed and they turned. So you get repentance and faith. And that's what it means to be converted. You believe and you turn. Both. 
Can't have one without the other. You can, but it's not genuine saving faith if, if you have one without the other. If you turn without belief, you're not going to be saved. Or if you believe but don't turn, you're not going to be saved. You must believe and turn. Uh, repent and believe. And that's exactly what they were doing to the amazement of a number of people there. Now, I've continued to listen, list the Mark 5 passage because you know, when we talk about unfamiliar people, once again, Jesus, when he was dealing with his disciples in Mark 5, not only took them to a pig farm, but you remember who the first customer was, <laughs> the Gadarene demoniac who had no clothes and he had irons hanging from his arms and his legs. I'm sure some folks were thinking among the disciples, you know, Jesus attracts the wrong crowd. I'm just not sure I want to stand. Yeah, they wouldn't have made very good Presbyterians. You know, no clothes, screaming at the top of his lungs, beating people up, unfamiliar people. And the people that you discount and think wouldn't make very good Christians, God happens to think they'll make very fine Christians. What they need is is Christ. And then, of course, unfamiliar blessings. You see that, once again, I list the Mark 5 passage because you remember that story that Jesus commands the demons to come out of that man and they come out. Probably 6,000 of them because his name was Legion and the uh, Legion was 6,000 soldiers in a Roman army. Probably 6,000 demons come out of that man, go into the pigs. Remember, the pigs go into the lake to the bottom of the sea with the demons in them. And he's, Jesus has cleansed the land of its demons. He's exorcised this man of his demons. And then the man who is naked and crazy is now clothed in his right mind and seated at the feet of Jesus. Now, there's a miracle, unusual power of the gospel. Where Christ goes, he changes people and changes nations. And that's what was happening here, unusual or unfamiliar blessings. People believed that they didn't expect would believe and turn to the Lord. And some uh, suspect that Luke himself, the author of Acts, may have been converted in Antioch. Now, Luke was natively uh, from the Aegean. But some scholars believe that he was in Antioch at this time. And the reason is some of the Western Greek texts, you know, we have thousands of them. Some of them, uh, in a, a later verse, uh, Luke says, we. And so some suspect that, that, that we may have been there because some copyists knew that Luke was with that group uh, in Antioch. We don't know that for sure. Uh, Luke was, of course, had a Gentile background. But here we see many converted. Now, what we see in verse 22 then is not only that Christ's mission creates challenges, but missional challenges are solved through missional leaders. What's the challenge? The challenge is now that these crazy Gentiles, these with an unethical, immoral background, are now claiming to belong to God's people and are going to start mixing it up with the Jews. Now think about this. The Jewish people are thinking, you know, i got some cousins up there in that church, and they've got some young children. You bring those crazy Gentiles in there with their children, and they might one day, who knows, they might intermarry or something like that. And they begin to think about how it's going to work with this mixed crowd in there and the mixing all these children up and, and the, the evil influence that those Gentile families will have on the Jewish families. And there's a lot of controversy. What do we need right now? We need some good men who are principled and who don't let pragmatic arguments like that trump the gospel. And that's what pragmatic, ungodly people try to do. You can see it in our very community. This, this whole thing about the, the stool, school crisis. I, I don't know all the arguments. I'm not a politician, but I can smell a rat. And I hear in some of the arguments, some of the old traditional segregationalism. And it's not just race. A lot of it is class. And I want to be in a nice neighborhood where I can have zero crime and I don't have anybody in my neighborhood who needs anything because I don't want to have to give anything to anybody. And I don't want my children to mix it up with some people who don't have as much money or prestige or position as they do. Same kind of crud that goes on today everywhere, not just in Memphis, but it's going on here too. And what do we need? We need some good men. That's exactly what the church in Jerusalem does. They hear the report. Some in Jerusalem are concerned because they don't get out much. They don't travel the world. They've been in Jerusalem all their lives. And they've just assumed that it's all for us Jewish folks. They don't get out much and they're very suspicious. 
Some others realize, you know what? We've seen what's been happening in Samaria. We saw what's happening in Caesarea. We heard about the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe God has taken this thing everywhere. I don't know, but we need to find out what we're going to do. We've got to find ourselves a good man. Somebody's got to investigate this who is gracious. Well, what do they do? A report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas. Now, we've run, run across Barnabas in chapter 4, verse 36. There a man sold his property and gave the proceeds to the church. Remember that. Barnabas, the very name Bar, B-A-R, in Aramaic, means son. Navas, na, Navas, Bar Navas. Navas means encouragement. So he's the son of encouragement. That's his very name. Barnabas is also from Cyprus. So he will know these Cyprians who've been doing the evangelism. Barnabas will know who they are. Fellow Jews. He speaks their dialect. And he is a man who obviously has some traits we're going to find out about. We're going to find out why they pick Barnabas. And we're going to find out why each of us needs to aspire to those same qualities in our lives if we're going to be men who carry out the mission in your church, in your neighborhood, and in this city to make a difference for the Lord. Uh, Barnabas was uh, a, a key figure in the book of Acts. And I want you to turn, before we begin to tear this apart here and look at it, I want you just to move ahead to verse 24. And in verse 24 on the next page, you see this phrase, for he was a good man. And that's the reason I've entitled this whole thing, a good man. Right there, Barnabas was a good man. Now, <clears throat> in our day, it's not rare to call somebody a good man. But I want you to think about this with me for a moment. So a few years ago, uh, when Jim Collins' book came out, Good to Great, uh, it stimulated some thinking in my mind. In Collins' book, which, which I think is a fabulous book, he, he studied companies, I believe they were all in the New York Stock Exchange, which had outperformed the market by a multiple of three over a period of no less than 15 years. Okay, so he was studying companies that didn't just have a phenomenal year or a phenomenal administration with one CEO, but companies that over 15 years had radically outperformed their competitors. And there were 11 of them. And he researched those 11 companies and compared them to 11 other companies that didn't do so well. And he was looking for common traits, which would take a company from being a good company to a great company. And you remember the, some of the famous things they came up with, that it's who before it's what. In other words, you get them on the bus and you find them in their seat later. In other words, just get good people and you can position them later. The hedgehog concept came from that. The uh, uh, f facing the brutal facts came from that. Many, many other concepts that he found. Level 5 leadership, for example. All those were common with those 11 companies. Good to great. Well, when I saw that, it triggered my mind to think, what would the Bible say about that? And I just thought about those two words, good and great. And I went to my Bible and looked up the word great uh, in the King James Version. Uh, in the King James, great translates a Hebrew word that can mean large, wealthy, prominent. And I found that great was often used. Uh, David was great. Uh, Moses was great. Israel was great. But then I found old wicked Nabal was great. Babylon was great. Uh, Barzillai the Gileadite was great. You say, who the heck was Barzillai the Gileadite? That's just my point. Uh, you had all kinds of great people. And all that it took to be great was to have a lot of money or to be a very large man. And then you're great. And then I began to look up the word good. And here's what I discovered. That there are only two people in the entire Bible that are called good. Now, there's one, there's one in the Old Testament, but it's, it's a throwaway because uh, a messenger is coming back to give David the message about Absalom. And David 
says, oh, him he has, he's a good man, he'll have a good report. He wasn't really making a, you know, a, a, a moral statement about Ahimeaz. So I discount that one. There are only two. Joseph of Arimathea was one who gave up his burial place for the body of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. And the other is right here. And I began to ask myself, now, why is that? Why is the word good, tov in Hebrew, uh, why, why would that word be reserved and, and not be used for, for men? Well, Here's what I found out about the word good. It's, it's all over the Bible. But it consistently applies to God. Uh, the psalmist says, Give thanks to the Lord for He is... Yeah. Uh, there was evening and morning the first day. God saw what He had made and it was... Yeah. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So good has to do with God's character, God's creation, and God's providence. It's all about God. That's the reason that when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. The first thing Jesus says to him is, Why do you call me good? God alone is good. Now, of course, Jesus is the third person incarnate. Jesus wasn't making a comment about the hypostatic union between deity and humanity in his own being. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the flippant use of the word good by the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Good is a very important word. And therefore, what occurred to me is, rather than you and me trying to move from good to great, here's what we need to do. We need to try to move from great to good. When Jeremiah spoke to Baruch uh, in the prophets, uh, Jeremiah said to him, uh, do not seek greatness for yourself. And so we, we, we naturally attend to greatness. We naturally want to be great. We don't want to be good. And what we find with Barnabas, he was one who renounced greatness, that he might have goodness. We're going to see why Luke calls him good, almost uniquely in the Bible, in just a moment. Now, here's the point. This is to what we aspire. If I could put it in in these kind of terms, biblical greatness is actually goodness, if you will. So we want to move from great to good. Now, why? Well, because, of course, that that honors and glorifies the Lord. If He is good, and we are seeking to be good, and we're moving toward goodness, we're magnifying Him. We're reflecting Him. We're displaying His character. That's the most important thing. But here we see in the mission of Jesus Christ, we've got to have good men. We can't carry out the mission without good men. We can't deal with the poor in Memphis without good men. We can't have black and white relations brotherly the way they're supposed to be without good men. We can't do it without the Barnabases of the world. Now let's look at Barnabas and see what it is about him that makes him good. First of all, verses 23 through 30, good men are God-centered. They're about God. They're not about themselves. And they're not about their estates. And they're not about what car they drive. They're God-centered. That's what defines them. So you'll see it in in this case. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. First of all, they celebrate the grace of God. A man who is God-centered takes delight in the grace of God. He takes delight when God is being good to someone who doesn't deserve it. Rather than being jealous or being envious in some way or covetous, he delights in the goodness that is happening to another man. Uh, we had a Sunday school teacher one time who taught his class, you know, when you really have a friend, he is the person who actually genuinely takes delight when you get your new Mercedes. And there was a man who came up at the end of that class and said to the teacher, I've never had a friend like that. A lot of men never have. That's because your friends were not good men. Now, I'm not saying they should be glad that you spent your money uh, on a new Mercedes when you should have given it to the poor. 
But something good happened to you. You got a nice car. You're comfortable in it. It drives nicely. Do you have a friend that actually delights when something good happens in your life? Barnabas was one of those people. He delighted when he saw these former dogs, these Gentiles, rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was delighted in it. And we need to take our delight when we see the poor glad, we see the lost saved. Nothing brings us greater joy, so on. Notice secondly in verse 23b that they, that is God-centered good men, encourage the church of God. We've seen how Barnabas' name means encouragement. And some of us have have had very prominent experiences of this. I can remember uh, when I wasn't sure if, if I should think about going to seminary. It was, I, w- I was a full-time salesman for Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I had two kids. Uh, what was in my mind to think that I was going to leave my job and, and start going back to academics uh, for three years in order to prepare for some sort of ministry? And it was a very, very difficult, uh, confusing time in my life. And I went to my session, and there was a good man sitting next to me. He was about 75 years of age at the time. And I was 27. And I told the session about what I thought the Lord might be putting on my heart and my reservations and my concerns. And this gentleman, his name was Gerald Penny. And I always remember his name because he didn't have two pennies to rub together. He was a very common, poor man. He worked uh, as a common laborer, lived in an upstairs apartment, usually walked up the hill to church with his wife. And on a snowy day, he would drive his old 67 Chevy. And Gerald Penny put his, and he was also from Nova Scotia, so he had a nice little accent. Uh, Gerald Penny put his arm, his hand on my arm, and he said, Brother, whatever is mine is yours. And I I could have thought, that won't help me much. (laughs) I didn't think that at all. I didn't think that at all. He just poured encouragement into my life. He basically said, whatever I've got, uh, I'm going to put it in your life because I believe in you. And he basically was saying the same thing to me that here Barnabas is saying. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, Gerald Penny, the old man, puts his hand on the arm of a young man. And he says, we're going to do this together and you're not going to slow down and you're going to go straight on through and I'm going to be with you all the way. And whatever it costs you, it's going to cost me. That's called encouragement. That's called a good man. And obviously 35 years later, I haven't forgotten it. Uh, this is what it means to be a good man. You go into the places where maybe someone else won't dare go. You go encourage the young men that perhaps no one else is speaking to. I remember a guy who was a wonderful missionary. He told me that in his middle age years, he went back to his home church in, in uh, the North Midwest. And one of the older elders came up to him and said, Ken, I always knew you'd be a missionary. And Ken told me, I sure wish he had told me that to me when I was 18. He could have saved me a decade. When you see something in a younger man, gentlemen, and everyone here has younger men, everyone here has people about 10 years under you that you can influence. And when you see the Lord doing something there, you go in and affirm it and pour fuel on it, pour gasoline on that fire. That's what good men do. They've always got their eyes open for what good is happening around here, and they pour whatever fuel they can. And let me tell you something. Gerald Penny taught me a lesson. You don't have to have any money to do that. You don't have to have a lot of prestige to do that. You know what you've got? Yourself. You're a good man, and what you have to say carries a lot of weight with those who are waiting for that encouragement. That's exactly what Barnabas did. He just went in and encouraged them. He didn't just say, oh, you all are wonderful people. We'd love to have you in the family. No, he encourages them toward the Lord. Look what encouragement is. You're strengthening people to serve the Lord. That's what biblical encouragement is from a good man. We desperately need it. Thirdly, They receive the gifts of God. Now notice this. This is the key to the entire life. It says in verse 24a, for he was a good man. In other words, he celebrated the grace of God and he encouraged them because he was a good man. But notice the exegetical statement after that. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now this is the key. If, as Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel. My flesh has nothing good in it at all. 
But I've been redeemed, but I still have this flesh. How in the world am I going to be a good man? Well, I'll tell you what, you're going to have to get outside yourself. You stay in yourself, you're shot. There's no hope of your being a good man as long as you stay in yourself. If you want to read all the books on ethics and you want to take your old dirty rotten self and try to apply that book of ethics, including the Bible, to life, you're going to lose every time because your dirty rotten self won't do what the nice Bible says to do. You have to have help. Just like you had to have help on the cross to forgive you for your sins, you've got to have help from the Holy Spirit to empower you to do what the Bible says. So, you must be full of the Holy Spirit. Why? The Holy Spirit is God. God alone is good. And the good spirit then comes into the lives of wicked men and increasingly makes them good men. That's the whole key to it. It's a mystery. It's the mystery, just like the incarnation is a mystery, the mystery of God and man in one uh, in one human or in one being, you have humanity and deity. Here's another mystery: a sinner empowered by the good Spirit, living life, and that's what you are if you're in Christ. Barnabas was consciously being filled by the Spirit. Why? Because he was a man of faith. You want to know how do I get the Spirit? Trust Him. Ask Him, just like you asked Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, to apply His blood to your evil uh, sins. And to cleanse your record, you asked him for that. Now ask him to come in and take over your life and depend upon him. And consciously look to him to lead you and guide you. Do you think Barnabas was just naturally a good man? Think again. He was full of the Spirit. And he trusted the Lord. And that's the only way this city's going to change. It's the only way your life's going to change. Is if we begin looking to the Lord instead of our own common sense that mommy and daddy taught us. So here you go. He received the gifts of God, and that's what good men do. They're God-centered. It's all about God. So we celebrate God's work by His grace. We encourage others to move toward God. And then we look to God for that power to work through our lives. That's what makes good men. Now, they're not only God-centered, but lastly, they are others-focused. They get outside of themselves. They look to the needs of other people. This is what the Spirit does. Look what the Spirit did to Jesus. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told that He received the Spirit beyond measure. He, the dove, settled on Him. His life was empowered by the third person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity in flesh was empowered by the third person of the Trinity all seeking to please their Father, the first person of the Trinity. And what did the Spirit do? The Spirit enabled Jesus to die to Himself and to lay His life down on the cross. Why? For you. And if the same Spirit comes in your life, that's what He's going to do. You're going to die to yourself. And your interests are going to begin to expand so that they're beyond just yourself and your family. You're going to actually care about other people, even people you don't know so well. That's exactly what's happening here. Good men are others-focused. Look what other-focused people do. Number one, they share the gospel. And a great many people were added to the Lord. As Proverbs says in chapter 11, the one who wins souls is wise. And in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. You give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And Paul says to the Philippians that you shine like stars in the universe as you hold forth the word of life. Hold it forth. That's the beam of light, the shaft of light that's come into the world. It's the word of God. Hold it forth. Live it out. And if you'll live it out consistently, you're going to get some questions from people who know you. And when they start asking the questions, you start giving the explanation. There's only one ultimate explanation. It's because you're in love with Jesus Christ and you're following Him. That's light. That's sharing the gospel with inviting people to go to church, inviting people to be in your Bible study, inviting people to hear the Word of God, trying to gather them in. That's where life is going to come from if people hear the Word, believe, and turn to the Lord. And notice that when they when they were added in verse 24, they were added to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Not just added to the church. They didn't just become a member of the club. No, they were intimately connected to Jesus Christ and became a member of His body. They were added to Him. Jesus is growing, if you will, 
as were added to him through faith. Notice secondly, that good men who are other focused share the ministry. Verse 25 and 26. This is a remarkable two verses. I want us to think about it for just a minute before we close. Notice that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Okay. Where has Saul been all this time? We saw how he was taken out of Jerusalem in the end of chapter 9 when his presence was stirring up so much controversy. They got him out and we hadn't heard from him since. Where's he been? Well, for nearly 14 years, Paul has been studying and he's been ministering in Tarsus, his hometown, which uh, if we're looking this way, you have the Mediterranean's right here, Turkey's up here, Antioch is right here, Tarsus is right here. 145 miles away by foot. And Paul's been ministering for 14 years, and we think from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul describes some of his sufferings, some of those don't fit what we know about the New Testament. They must have happened while he was ministering in Tarsus and in other places. So Paul is continually studying the Word, teaching the Word, but he hasn't been in contact with the brethren in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's, he's, Paul always causes trouble until a good man decides to go get him. Paul would never have been launched in his ministry, brothers. Acts 13, where do, these, where do Paul and Barnabas get launched from? Antioch. With the brothers who were laying hands on them and praying and sending them out. Paul never would have been sent out except for a good man. And yes, of course you hear uh, about the great preachers and the great leaders. But I tell you what, there are some good men around those men. It was always said of Billy Graham that not only, uh, two things about him. He was a prayer, first of all. Secondly, he always surrounded himself with good men. Barnabas, instead of saying to the Antiochenes, Hey, I know the gospel. Why don't you let me teach you? Because I've been looking for a place to teach anyway. I love to teach. And here you are and you need a teacher. And I'd love to do it myself. No, Barnabas said, hang on just a minute. I know the perfect guy. And he travels 145 miles by foot. And then I'm sure he had to sit down and convince Paul to come. Paul would have said, you know, last time I tried something like that, all I did was just stir up the whole church, got everybody in Jerusalem mad at me. I can't. And you listen to, to Barnabas. Can you imagine how Barnabas would have handled Saul? Saul, look, I've seen you. You are a man who can articulate the gospel for Gentiles. You're tough as nails. God has given you some gifts for ministry. You've got to come with me. Can you hear Barnabas, a good man who cares about the Antiochians more than he cares about himself and what position he might have? And he goes for Saul, the best that he can find, and he walks on foot to go get him, pleads with him, and then brings him back. 145 miles, you go to Little Rock. That's 145 miles. Two and a half hours, you got it. This takes about a four-week round trip. Now look at the partnership that Barnabas is looking for because he wants to recruit the best people he can to get the job done in the best way. Can you imagine they're here together for a whole year in this church and for your superintendent of Sunday schools, you've got Barnabas for the year and for your Sunday school teacher and preacher on Sunday morning, you've got Paul every day for a year. Can you imagine what kind of church that was? No wonder they were the staging ground for the international mission in Paul's whole life. They've been so well trained because a good man saw to it. He was able to humble himself. He was able to assess his own gifts. He knew where his strengths and his weaknesses were, and therefore he could identify the strengths and weaknesses of other people. If you can't identify your own and you don't get yourself positioned well, you can't position other people. It takes the Spirit to kill your flesh so that you can see reality. And that's exactly what Barnabas was doing here. And he goes and he gets Paul and he brings him back and he employs him. It's a wonderful sharing of ministry. If you think you're going to do the ministry of Jesus Christ as a lone ranger, you got another thought coming. It is a partnering ministry. That's the only way it can get done. Look in the Bible. Check me out on that. Lastly, not only do they share the gospel and share the ministry, they share their finances. Now, you would expect this from a good man. And you would particularly expect it from a man like Barnabas, who already showed you that he sold his fields in order to give the proceeds to the early church in Jerusalem. He was a very generous man. Good men are generous men. Good men are generous men. So you'd expect this from Barnabas. But what you see here is it's not only his generosity, but it's contagious. 
And undoubtedly, because Barnabas has found such joy in pouring his life and resources into the kingdom of God, that being full of joy, others want to know where this joy was coming from. And I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's being totally devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoying his intimate fellowship. And when he's got your pocketbook, he's usually got your heart. And if he doesn't have your pocketbook, I'll guarantee you he doesn't have your heart. You want to be sure he's got your pocketbook because you want to be sure he's got your heart. I remember a, a man who, oh, I don't have time to tell you the story. It'll come next time. But let's, let's end with this. So Barnabas then inspires them to think not only about caring for themselves in Antioch, and I'm sure they had plenty of problems in Antioch, but he reminds them of the famine, or actually they have a prophecy of the famine, and Barnabas raises money on a vision. The famine is coming, <clears throat> and we know that the mother church in Jerusalem, who's poor already, is going to be even poorer. And sure enough, famine did come to Jerusalem in 45 AD. So the prophecy from Agabus was correct. Barnabas raised money on a vision, on a prophecy. And <clears throat> he had a truckload of resources sent to Jerusalem. Now, gentlemen, from what I understand from classical historians... This is the first instance in recorded history of international gifts being given. First instance. Today, you wouldn't think about it because it's so common. I'll tell you why it's common. Because of a man named Barnabas. He started a wave of international aid. There was no such thing until then. You don't ever read of the Romans sending resources to Alexandria to relieve the poverty in Egypt. You don't ever read of the Babylonians sending something over uh, to the Assyrians to help out the poor. Never happened. Why does it happen here? Because the gospel goes to all the world. And it makes us brothers all over the world. And therefore we care for our family even if we've never met them. Because they are brothers and we're treating them like family. And that has been contagious all over the world, now even into the non-Christian world, where international aid is a rather common idea now. So Antioch becomes the donor of the first international gift of charity. And Antioch becomes a staging ground for the international mission of the Apostle Paul and of the Church of Jesus Christ for ages to come because the church needed a good man. God found one. And God put him to work. And those same good men are needed right now in the church in Memphis, Tennessee. And God still has his eye out for them. And he's still putting them to work. And I'm grateful for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mission of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the challenges that that mission presents so that we are called upon to rise up and look to the Holy Spirit to fill our lives that we may be the good men who promulgate this gospel and this mission all over the world and in our own city. Help us, Lord. Enable us by your Spirit to be the good men that are needed in our own time. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Amen.